Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the GynoBits podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Susie Weber, board-certified gynecologist and menopause specialist. On the GynoBits podcast, we'll cover women's health issues with a focus on menopause, bovovaginal conditions, and sexual health. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the GynoBits podcast today. Today, I am excited to have Dr. Sadaf Lodi here. She's an OBGYN and life and intimacy coach. And we were going to be talking about sexual health and intimacy issues, which I am very excited to learn more about. Dr. Lodi, can you introduce yourself and give us a little bit of information about how you got to this point in your career? Absolutely. So thank you so much um, for having me on. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm so excited to be in your listeners' ears. So I am a board-certified OBGYN, and I've been in practice now as um, outside of training for about 19 years. And what happened is that I realized that I myself, as a gynecologist, did not know very much about sexual health. Uh, I'll be honest, there wasn't, I didn't receive much education in terms of medical school. You know, we learned probably about, I don't know, would you say maybe like two hours, you know, at least in my medical school up at Michigan State, we didn't learn very much. And, um, and what we learned was, you know, the Masters and Johnson um, theory about the sexual, re- sexual response. And really, that was the male sexual response. And that was based on research done in the 1960s on really old white men. Um, And so, you know, trying to treat women based on that type of sexual response and that research wasn't really sufficient. And I realized that there were gaps in my own knowledge. And women would always come to me, you know, talking about, and probably also to you, because we're both gynecologists, about sexual health, sexual functioning, decreased libido, decreased arousal. And for me, I would just say that, you know, I didn't really know how best to answer their questions. I mean, sure, I could look it up, but I just really didn't feel comfortable. So that is kind of what set me forth on my journey. And then also what I realized is that oftentimes women that come from, say, backgrounds that are pretty conservative um, also have a hard time giving themselves permission to learn about sex, to perhaps experience pleasure and, um, and that there really had to be a better way to get that information out. And so that is really why I started on it. And and I would say that it, it wasn't just say, you know, say like a Muslim background or anything like that, but it was also, you know, I have women that are uh, grew up being Catholic or uh, I had a patient recently that was Mormon. Um, and so different, I think the women that go up and grow up in a traditionally conservative um, culture oftentimes have trouble talking about sex and experiencing sexual pleasure. Yeah, that's, that's great. I totally agree with you. And I think we're starting to think about that more and asking more of these tough questions. And also we see we're in the position of trust where we see a lot of women that have suffered, unfortunately, trauma and abuse. And I think that we're finally, well, not finally, but making more of an effort to incorporate that into our screening for domestic violence and screening for history of trauma and abuse and making sure that we're having these conversations. And so we know what a woman's background is, but I agree that I think a lot of women with a traditional or conservative upbringing don't feel comfortable talking about these things with anyone. And and that really impacts their daily function and how they feel about themselves in in an intimate situation. 
What would you say is the most common issue that you deal with as an intimacy coach or yeah. the most, the several common issues that you see? Yeah. And there's, there's definitely tons, but um, just to give you a little bit of background and then, I'll, you know, we'll go into the different types of questions that I see, but just so also what brought me to become a, an intimacy coach was that aside from just not having the knowledge about sexual health was also um, that I thought that coaching was really important. And so be, I became a coach through Rutgers University. And what I realized that so much of our lives, we spent kind of in our heads, right? In our thoughts. And what is so important is that realizing that we had the option to choose our thoughts and that becomes very empowering. And so how that fits into, let's say, intimacy coaching is that a lot of times women will think that, you know, perhaps um, that it's just not meant to be that they enjoy sex or that, uh, you know, they have a lot of issues with body image. And so they're spectating when they're being physically intimate with their partner or that, you know, sex becomes a chore. And so it's just not really enjoyable or that, you know, they can't really focus when they're being intimate with their partner. And so, you know, they're thinking about so many other things. And so they're really not enjoying the process and that it's really not that important for them. Um, and so coaching really gets into the thoughts. And I use a lot of times I use cognitive behavioral therapy in helping women achieve the type of sexual confidence that they would like to achieve and attain more pleasure in their relationships. And I do that by looking into their thoughts and then seeing what type of feelings come up based on those thoughts and then what type of actions are resulted from those feelings. And then if, say, if somebody come, grew up in a sex negative type of culture or environment, trying to change that more into like a sex positive type of environment and then seeing how that then plays out in their life. Um, to your question of what type of issues I see in clients, uh, I would say the most common complaint that I get is decreased libido. And, um, you know, what we talk about in sexual health is that decreased libido isn't necessarily a problem. For example, there are people that are asexual, right? So to them, um, it doesn't matter, you know, that's just the way they are. And sex is really not a big part of their lives. Then there are others that are demisexual where, you know, only once they establish that emotional relationship with a partner, do they become, you know, attracted to them and, you know, become aroused and things like that. For women that have, and, you know, in gynecology, we call the hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And that happens when, you know, somebody, let's say, that had great libido before now is experiencing decreased libido and it's really bothersome to them. And that's the key feature there is that when it becomes bothersome to the patient, then that's when, um, you know, that's when they are diagnosed with this hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And then there, there's a whole... Um, I would say a, a whole, I don't want to say pathway, but there's a way that then we go and evaluate, you know, how, uh, how this came about, how this happened, and what are the different aspects of a woman's life that contributes to that. And then I can get into that a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because having decreased libido or sex drive in and of itself may not be a problem. You know, some women may be experiencing that, but if they are not 
concerned about it or their partner's not concerned about it, then there isn't necessarily a need to be treating it and looking at it as something that's negative. So I'm glad that you made that point. Um, and also that it's important to exclude all the other factors in a woman's life that can be impacting her interest in sex and sexual function, because I, I always say our largest sexual organ, I mean, everybody says this is our brain as women. So if there's a lot of other things going on, stress-wise, medical-wise, of course, that's going to spill over and impact how you look at intimacy and things like that. What, um, you know, are there any challenges that you see more in your perimenopausal clients or menopausal clients? I mean, I I'm sure you see so many different things and everyone is different and probably has multiple issues that they might be struggling with. Um, but is there anything that you've seen more commonly in the perimenopausal or menopausal age group? Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say it's, you know, the decreased libido. I would also say um, pain with sex. Pain with sex is very common. And, you know, that we know uh, as we go through perimenopause and menopause, we know that estrogen decreases in our bodies. And when estrogen decreases in our bodies, that can result in that tissue in the, of the vagina becoming thinner and also decreased blood supply getting to our vulvar region. And so when that happens, um, then we need to supplement a lot of times what can help is, you know, we talk a little bit about vaginal estrogen, local vag vaginal estrogen, which is very helpful in helping to maintain that tissue in the vagina. Also, if there are women that have concerns about uh, vaginal estrogen, we know that vaginal estrogen is really safe, but you can also use something called intrarosa, which is uh, DHEA. And that is also a suppository that women can place inside the vagina. And then that turns over to uh, estrogen and also testosterone. And some women say that it actually helps a little bit with libido. Um, I wouldn't use it solely for the purpose of libido. You know, um, there is a little bit of testosterone that is converted. But I think that, you know, when we talk about decreased libido, and when we talk about hypoactive sexual desire disorder, I think it's important to use um, what we use in sexual medicine, which is the biopsychosocial model. And that is really important because what that does is it assesses all parts of a woman's life. So when we talk about the bio aspect, we're referring to like medical conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, you know, it can also refer to anxiety and depression and things such as that things like that. And the reason why that's important is because oftentimes medications that we use in treatment of those uh, different types of medical conditions can also have an effect on libido. For example, if you're on a calcium channel blocker that could, for high blood pressure, that can affect libido. If you are taking um, uh, Axel or Zoloft, uh, we know that that also impacts libido if women are taking that for depression, we know that some diabetic medications can affect libido. So there are lots of different medications that can affect libido, which is super important to understand and know and discuss with your provider. Also, there can be some type of anatomic conditions, right? So when you are seeing your gynecologist and if you're having decreased libido, well, you're not really going to want sex. If you're having pain with sex, if you're getting recurrent UTIs, all of those things can impact how you experience sex. And so, you know, you'll want to be evaluated. 
um, by your practitioners to make sure that there's nothing else going on. Chronic infections. I know that on your podcast, you also talk about vulvar vaginal conditions, right? And disorders. So any of those things can be also affecting how you feel about sex. When we talk about the psycho aspect of it, again, we're talking about depression, we're talking about anxiety and how that shows up in relationships and how that makes you feel. And if the medications that you're using for those type of mental health conditions, if that's affecting your libido. And when we talk about the social aspect, we are referring to like, say your uh, your job, if you're a single mom working multiple jobs, right? That's going to affect your libido. If you have children that you're trying to take care of, if you are always worried about the dishes, the laundry, everything else going on, that's going to affect your libido. And so when you are so worried and your mind is so preoccupied with all these other thoughts, then sex is going to become just another chore on your list of things to do, and you're not really going to want it. And I think one of the best authors that I've ever read, her name is Emily Nagoski, and she wrote a book called Come As You Are. And she writes in there that, um, and in one of her TED Talks, she states that to want sex is to have sex worth wanting. So if you are not getting anything from the experience, or if the experience is causing you pain and difficulty, or if you're feeling anxiety around physical intimacy, then you're really not going to want it. So it's going to really be important to assess what's going on in your life, what's going on in your head, and what are other things that are contributing to your decreased libido that may be causing you a lot of stress and anxiety. Oh my gosh, that was a fabulous review. I love that you just went through all of that because I think that trying to figure out what's causing the decreased libido is, you know, you just get distracted by all these things that could be. And that was just such a fabulous review, breaking it down. And then, you know, I think there is that issue in our midlife is we start to have more medical problems. And so we may be actually treating our high blood pressure, we're treating our diabetes, we're trying to stay healthy, but a lot Sometimes our medications can have these side effects. And um, I think a lot of people don't realize that, but that was, that was terrific. Terrific. Thank you for going through all of that. I could add, um, you know, the social aspect of it as well. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this just in the beginning of the podcast, and that was the type of culture that you grow up in, right? So our social, we are social beings and we have a social community that we typically engage with. And so what are the attitudes of that community that you engage with? Is it a very sex positive community mm-hmm. or is it a sex negative community. And that also is going to affect how we feel about sex. And so if we are always thinking that sex is, you know, shameful, dirty, embarrassing, then we are going to take in those thoughts. And that's going to result also in our decreased libido and perhaps not really wanting it and thinking of it as a chore. And that if you know, if we go without sexual intimacy or physical intimacy in our life, it wouldn't be a big loss because that may be something or a way that you grew up with. Um, and so also that could be affecting your libido, which then may affect, you know, your relationship with your partner. So that's also something to look into. Now, do you work with women of all ages or do you feel like there's more of a generational thing that you're seeing or do you have pretty young patients too. I'm just interested in what your cohort is like. Yeah, no. So actually it's, you know, it's, it spans all of um, the different age ranges. 
because it's interesting, right? We would think that perhaps it was women that are a little bit older, maybe, you know, women that are struggling with perimenopause, menopause that are having more of the issues with um, sex and uh, libido and things like that. But no, actually it uh, spans all age ranges. I actually was on, um, I did a TikTok live with uh, an influencer and she is, I would say in her early thirties and she's talking about decreased libido. And she's talking about, you know, what she can do to increase her libido. So I would say that it really is a universal problem that a lot of women experience and not everyone is comfortable enough to discuss it and not everyone wants to be that vulnerable, right? Right. And so it takes a lot of strength and courage to discuss it with others and specifically your practitioner who may not actually even have time, right? Like we were talking about before, a lot of times when you're seeing so many patients in the clinic, you have 15 minutes. And so all of a sudden, you know, your patient starts to say, well, I'm having decreased libido and you're in your mind, you're thinking, oh my God, that's like a topic that could take me an hour to discuss. (laughs) At Um, least. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. You know, or multiple visits. And so it, um, you know, can become overwhelming for a practitioner, especially if they don't feel comfortable discussing sexual health and sexual health problems. And so it's going to be really important for patients to find practitioners that feel comfortable discussing it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, it, it, it does. It's not something that you can, you just scratch the surface at that first visit. If you could do a whole hour and then follow up hours, um, just trying to figure out what's going on and how to help that's someone. Um, and I, I have over the years seen a couple women in their twenties, even that were experiencing these things. Yes. And, um, you know, it can be multifactorial, of course. Um, sometimes we do see women with decreased libido because of their hormonal contraception. It's not every woman, of course. And I think it's, you know, important that we have many contraceptive options, but there are some women who don't do well with certain combinations of hormones, or they find if they're on a birth control pill, as opposed to an IUD, they may have a decreased libido from, you know, changes in theoretically changes in testosterone and things like that. So it is important to counsel our patients about potential side effects of our medications. We don't always think, we think about birth control as a medication, of course, but not like we're treating diabetes or depression or things like that. So the other thing I find in my patients is a discordance in sexual interest between them and their partner. So they may be in their late thirties, forties, and they have decreased libido. And sometimes they're feeling very bad for their partner because they want to express their love and they know that intimacy is, you know, potentially their partner's love language as well. And other times they're struggling with a partner that can be somewhat hostile or um, pressuring. And that's, that's a challenge. So I try to get patients to go and work with a counselor that has experience working with couples and it's sex therapy, but sometimes it's challenging for both partners to get on board with that. Do you have any recommendations or case studies or any way that you've handled that in the past? Definitely. So, you know, I actually had a client, um, similar situation, you know, and in fact, it was she that wanted sex more than Mm -hmm. he did. And, um, you know, I think sometimes what happens is that we fall into these traps where 
the women will actually be shamed by their husbands, you know, mm -hmm. for wanting sex too much, right? And whereas if it's the other way around, women feel guilty if they don't want sex as much as their husband, right? Mm -hmm. But so for her in her scenario, um, she was starting to feel a little bit ashamed by her husband because she wanted sex way more than he did. And she, you know, what ended up happening is that I did some sex coaching with her specifically, and we talked about, you know, when were the times that she actually was communicating with her partner, right? Was she actually having a discussion with him about what her needs were and what his needs were? And the answer came out that she wasn't, that they weren't discussing. And I, so I think that as patients find that it's difficult to speak with practitioners and providers, I think they also find it difficult to speak with their spouses. And so the key element to any relationship, I think, and I'm sure you feel the same, is communication. And actually, studies have been done on this. So there was a study done on a female sexual satisfaction survey, and they noted that the key indicator to a woman feeling sexually satisfied was communication with her spouse. And I know that that sounds really simple, but it's actually pretty difficult to do, especially if you have your own discomfort um, talking about sex and really talking about what it is that you want, what you like, what you don't like, and then trying to discuss that with your partner. I think that there are a lot of roadblocks that come up. And I think a lot of those roadblocks have to do with our thoughts and how we feel about sex. And again, it goes back to, you know, the, maybe the way that we were raised or perhaps like you mentioned, you know, it could be some type of sexual abuse, some kind of sexual trauma that then, you know, is ingrained and that we have a hard time moving past. And a lot of that requires therapy, as you know, but sometimes, you know, a sex coach also helps because you can then sit there and evaluate what your thoughts are and what your feelings are and how you can change those negative thoughts to some positive thoughts that, that are actually then going to serve you. And so communication was the key element. And it, it turned out that in this case with this client, um, what I asked her to do is I asked her to set aside, I gave her homework and I told her to set aside time every night with her partner to discuss, um, just first of all, just to start talking more because they realized that they weren't talking very much. And anytime they were talking, it was just about the kids or about the house and things like that. And it wasn't really about anything that would bring them closer together as a couple. And so then what they had their homework was, um, what her homework was specifically was to set aside time every night where she wasn't going to be, you know, doing the laundry, the dishes, the dinner, whatever she was going to set aside. And it started with 15 minutes. That was it. Just 15 minutes where they both, had time to just focus on each other and not, you know, not right before going to bed because going to right before going to bed, you're just tired and you just want to go to bed, right? Sometimes you don't <laughs> want to have those long, deep conversations. So a time that worked for both of them where they could actually talk about what they want and what they didn't want. And what she realized in her relationship was that he preferred sex in the morning and she wanted it at night where, you know, she was more rested and relaxed and wasn't thinking about what was ahead. And he would rather have sex in the morning. So the compromise that they came to is that they alternated. And, you know, whenever, um, and so some days they were, you know, being intimate in the morning and other times in the evening. And 
the most important thing in just coming up with that solution for their relationship was communication and setting aside that time. And she even said that, you know, it sounded like something really simple, but it made a huge difference in their relationship. Yeah, that's, that's great. Sometimes the simple things are the hardest things to do. Um, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And I do have some patients like that too, where the woman wants more intimacy and the man doesn't. And I think that one's challenging sometimes too, because partners, if they're, you know, if they're in a heterosexual relationship and their male partners having issues with sexual function, that can be its own whole thing where they may not be comfortable talking to their doctor about it. They don't want to go seek help for it. That can be a tremendous um, undertaking for them as well. You know, or sometimes if you've been in a relationship for a long time, you know, it's obviously not as exciting as it used to be. It can be super important for couples to have that intimacy that just fosters getting along and um, feeling that closeness. Obviously not for all couples. I have a lot of couples when they get to midlife, they are mutually agreed upon that they're not really interested in, um, you know, vaginal intercourse and things like that. They view other things for um, sexual enjoyment or they've gotten that out of their relationship and they're okay with intimacy on, on a different level. And they don't, that's not an issue for them, but um, you know, but for someone that's been in a long-term relationship and things have sort of been a certain way all these years, maybe they haven't been communicating about their wants and desires and they've just kind of been going along with the routine. Is there a way that you've had clients broach what they want sexually from their partner in a you know, a non-judgmental way. Yeah, yeah. So just to kind of um, backtrack just a little bit about what you were saying, um, you know, and I think this is a very key point and really important to highlight is that oftentimes, not oftentimes, but sometimes, um, you know, when we talk about women wanting sex more than men, what you stated, I think is very important is that sometimes it can be a medical condition that the man has, for example, if he has erectile dysfunction, right, or if he's having premature ejaculation, those may be things that he is embarrassed to talk about, if they're, of course, assuming they're in a heterosexual relationship, um, that it might be that he seeks treatment for that, right, and that the communication part of it is that he has um, enough um you know, confidence in himself to go and discuss that with his provider. And oftentimes with erectile dysfunction, we know that there is, um, that can be a sign of coronary artery disease in men. And that that can be one of the first things to happen where there, where the spouse, where the man is not able to get an erection. And, um, and that it's really important to for him to be evaluated for, you know, cholesterol. And uh, like I said, coronary artery disease, because we know one of the arteries in the penis, um, if it is blocked, then, you know, the person may not be able to have uh, an erection. So that's really important also to highlight. Um, I think what you were talking about in creating intimacy and, you know, in long-term relationships, I think we all kind of fall into that trap of thinking that, uh, you know, this relationship is kind of boring or that, you know, it's all, that's always the same old, same old, and, you know, he's not interested or she's not interested or whatever. And, you know, how do we create that spark again? I think one of the important things to know is that, you know, and I think another fallacy that we have is that we think that things were spontaneous, 
when we were first in the relationship and now they're not. And now that, you know, it's kind of silly. Oh, we have to plan out date nights and things like that. But I would say rather that, you know, we always planned things, right? So when you went on a date with somebody for the first time, you planned it. You planned where you were going to go, what you were going to wear, what the night was going to look like, how it was going to end, you know, and all the things that were going to happen. And even if you didn't plan every little thing, you did plan a lot of it, right? You did discuss where you were going to go eat, uh, what the time was going to be. You decided on what you were going to wear. So it wasn't as spontaneous as we think it was, right? We always tend to remember things to be better, I think, than mm-hmm. perhaps they That's were. That's true. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I would say that we did plan things. And so if we are going to move forward in our relationship and assuming that we want to continue to stay in the relationship that we're in, then I would suggest to make those, create those date nights, right? There's nothing wrong with that. And if you have a time set aside for your special person, then you know that that time, during that time, you are going to just focus on that person, right? That, mm-hmm. and that's where mindfulness comes in. And there's been lots of studies that have been shown that being mindful in a relationship actually increases desire, increases arousal. And that's because, as we know, you know, mindfulness is just being present in that moment without judgment and showing compassion. And so if we know that we can, that, you know, tonight is a night that I'm going to be spending with, say, my spouse. And um, I know that this time, like, say, from, I don't know, five to nine is just with him. Um, Then I'm going to try to just focus on that time with him, you know, listening to what he's saying, being present in the moment so that it automatically increases my emotional connection and emotional intimacy with my partner, which then leads leads to an increased desire and arousal if that's something that, you know, you're interested in. Um, I think that, you know, accepting and loving yourself as you are at this moment is really important as well. I think that, you know, oftentimes we get sucked into a trap like, oh, you know, I need to lose this much weight and then I'll feel beautiful and then I'll have that relationship with my spouse that I really want. Or, you know, maybe when I'm, uh, maybe after I get that surgery or whatever, you know, I'll feel more beautiful and then I'll want to have, you know, in physical intimacy with my partner and I'll feel better then or something, you know? So I think it's just accepting yourself as you are now and not waiting for when this happens, right? But just doing it now, because then if we are always waiting for that next step, that next step may never come. Right. And so then we we hold back and we hold ourselves back and not promote that emotional intimacy between each other and between our spouse. And we're just waiting for that perfect time when that perfect time is actually now. And it's important to create that time now. I think that also realizing that intimacy and love changes and looks different as we age. Right. So like you mentioned with your patients that are older or, or whatever, whatever stage of life that they're in. And they've decided that, you know what, this physical intimacy is really not that important. And we get that other type of intimacy with our partner, whether it be emotional, intellectual, experiential type of intimacy with our partner. And we don't really care for that physical intimacy. That's okay, because that's something that they've both have decided and agreed upon. And it may be that, you know, pleasure is more important. And I would say that actually, you know, you don't always have to have an end goal, right? Like say, for example, a woman never had an orgasm and it was never important to her, but 
maybe when she's having physical intimacy, she's still experiencing pleasure. It may not be orgasm, but it, it can still be pleasure, right? So whatever it is that brings you joy and that connection with your partner, I think is really what's important. And and if it doesn't include physical intimacy, that's okay, because that's something that you've decided on. And that's something that your partner has also agreed with. And it doesn't matter. It's really whatever, you know, looks good to you and feels good to you. And I think that realizing that, you know, intimacy just does look different as we age. And I think writing down what you want and communicating those wants and desires are super helpful because, you know, even if you're not able to communicate in person, say maybe it's easier for you to write down what you want, you know, then maybe you write a letter or maybe write a text or something to your partner and communicate what it is that you want. Because I think that that open communication and of knowing what your likes and wants are also it helps to establish that emotional intimacy. And then, of course, hopefully it leads to that physical intimacy that perhaps, you know, a person wants. And I can't emphasize enough scheduling in, you know, date nights. And um, even scheduling in sex, if that's something that's, you know, interesting and important to your relationship, there's nothing wrong with scheduling that because that way you both know that, you know, that's something that's important to your relationship. And that's something that you expect, you know, that night and that, you know, you'll have that night because then if you already schedule it in, then it's not like, oh, I'm too busy or, you know, oh, I don't feel like it, whatever, you know, you're already prepped for it. You're prepping for it in your head. You're thinking about it, maybe there's some text that you send each other throughout the day. And that, that in itself increases that emotional intimacy and also creates that spark and that anticipation, which then leads to, you know, better communication, and hopefully better intimacy with your partner. Yeah, man, that is great. I love all of that. I think that really you hit so many different points and it's such a complicated such a complicated thing, but we schedule so many other things that are not nearly as important as spending that time with our life partner. Um, so we should really not feel bad about scheduling. We're just carving out time for that important connection with our partner. I think that that is great because, you know, if, if you are planning to be in it for the long haul, you really need to do that to, to keep your relationship on track and, um, you know, if you have kids at home too, one day those kids are going to be out of the house and it's not going to be about them anymore. And you're going to have to refocus on your, on your relationship. So yeah, that was fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for coming on today. I could ask you a thousand more questions, but um, do you have any favorite resources for your clients that they can use to find help or find an intimacy coach? And also if they wanted to work with you, how would they get in touch with you? Yeah. So, you know, a few of the resources that I love, I, I love the author, Emily Nagoski. I think that her book is fantastic. She talks a lot about um, things that turn us on, things that turn us off. And she calls them the, the, breaks and the go and kind of how to maneuver that and navigate that um, in your own head. She does a lot of like, um, she talks a lot about like thoughts and what we're going through. So I think that that's actually a great resource. Um, her TED Talks are great. There's also, of course, uh, Esther Perel that talks a lot about relationships as well. So I think those are great resources. Um, 
For, for anyone that wants to work with me, I do offer intimacy coaching. And as you know, coaching can be national, international, and you can go to my website at drsadaf.com. That's D-R-S-A-D-A-F.com. Or you can email me at drsadaf at drsadaf.com um, to schedule an appointment. I'm also on Instagram and YouTube and TikTok at drsadafobgyn. Uh, you can follow me on there. You can DM me uh, there as well. And also I have um, a podcast called the Muslim Sex Podcast. And it's not just for Muslims. It's for anyone that's interested in learning about intimacy and relationships and obstetric and GYN issues. Um, I talk about all sorts of stuff. So that's great. And um, I was lucky enough to have you on there as well, which is fantastic. <laughs> so fun. And Thank you. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm more than happy. And now I'm offering telehealth uh, appointments for patients that are in New York and in Michigan for uh, menopause, perimenopause and sexual health. So yeah, lots of different ways to get in touch with me if anyone's uh, interested. Great, great. And I'll put all of your information in the podcast um, description too, as well. So if someone wants to find you, but thank you so much for your time. And this amazing information. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for today's GynoBits podcast. If you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, and share. Just a reminder that this is not medical advice and you should consult with your personal physician. Also, the opinions and views are mine only and do not reflect those of my employer. If you would like more information or to consult with me, please go to my webpage, healthiermenopause.com. You can also find me on Instagram at healthiermenopause and Facebook, menopausemd.com.